Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. such an exciting morning um, because first time ever that um, the speaker has done both Emmaus Road Woking and Emmaus Road Guildford uh, in the same morning. I felt like kind of the vicar of D- Dibley on, on sort of, you know, E this morning. It was sort of, and uh, you have no idea how slowly people drive on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Especially in Guildford, every single light was red. But I was just rejoicing. I was, uh, but it's so exciting to be over there at the lighthouse and see it packed out. Children squawking. There's a guy there this morning who uh, really has only just given his life to Jesus this week, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? So it's 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 such a joy to be with you. And we're um, on the second now of this series, where we're, we are seeking to explore and apply. The, the key themes of my book, Dirty Glory. And those themes are presence, the presence of God. Bill spoke about that two weeks ago. Prayer, I'm speaking about that today. And Jill Weber from Canada is going to be doing a part two uh, next week. Uh, then mission uh, is the third great theme. And we've got Drew Coldwell, who works with Syrian refugees in Lebanon, uh, speaking in a few weeks' time about God's heart for the nations. Uh, and we've also got a guy called Martin Goldsmith, who is uh, just an elder statesman uh, in the world of missions. Um, he used to be a, a missionary in Indonesia. He's a lecturer at All Nations Bible College. He's now quite an old man and retired. Uh, and he's also a Messianic Jew. And he's going to be doing a three-part mini-series. Uh, in the morning at this service, he's going to be speaking about Jesus and Islam. If you're wondering how, as Christians, do we relate to the, uh, our Muslim friends and to the Muslim world, he's going to be speaking about that. Uh, then in the afternoon, he's going to be a, doing a one-off seminar at the Founders Studio on Jesus and Israel. And that's going to be interesting. And I've had several of you writing to me saying, why don't we ever address this? Well, the truth is some churches are too terrified ever to talk about that issue because it's so controversial uh, and divisive potentially. Uh, And other churches talk about nothing else, which is also really unhelpful. But uh, as a Messianic Jew, he's going to come and talk about Jesus and Israel in the afternoon, if you're interested in that. In the evening, he's going to talk about Jesus and the nations. So um, uh, that's part of the mission side of this series. And then finally, justice. We're going to be thinking together about justice. Uh, and Hannah and Eric Jesperson with the work we're doing in, in, in um, Woking with the Lighthouse and so on. going to talk about those. So um, uh, that's the plan. That's what we're, we're doing right now. And our desire is really just to go deeper in knowing Jesus and to get better at making him known. So um, we're going to look together at Mark chapter 11. Verses 15 to 18, I think it's on the screens here. So uh, let's, uh, let's look at this wonderful uh, story that really holds all these themes together. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said... Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, 
but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him because they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. This extraordinary confrontation uh, took place um, almost certainly uh, right at the end of Jesus' uh, ministry. Some people, commentators say it's the event that got him crucified. And you see that in the text. They began to conspire how they could kill him as a result of this showdown. So this is not Jesus meek and mild. This is a highly uh, disruptive, arrestable moment. And um, it's interesting because all four Gospels recount this story of the cleansing of the temple, as they call it. And uh, any, anything that gets into all four, you should sort of pay particular attention to. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all tell this story. But interestingly, where in the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is, um, the chronology of it is that it's just at the end of Christ's ministry, just very shortly, as I said earlier, before he gets killed. In John's Gospel, this is the very first public thing that Jesus really does, pretty much. And so um, people explain that in two different ways. People who are more traditional, conservative in the way that they uh, interpret the Bible say, well, it's very simple, Jesus did it twice. He cleansed the temple at the start of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. People who are a little more um, uh, uh, um, sort of relaxed in the way they interpret the Bible while still recognizing its authority say, look, it's a bit silly to think that Jesus did it twice. Presumably what's happening is John was taking the story that happened at the end of Christ's life and slap bang putting it at the start of his life, which is the sort of thing that filmmakers and good storytellers do all the time. And if you have familiarized yourself with the nuances of John's gospel, you'll see that actually John was more of a filmmaker before they just didn't have films. I'm pretty sure if he's around today, he'd go, I'm not writing a gospel, I'm making a movie. Uh, it's very, there's lots of references to light and dark. He definitely moves different things around to add to their drama and their impact and put them in an interesting context. And so I think there's a fairly strong likelihood that that's what's happening here. Which means that John is saying, out of all of the canon of Christ's public ministry, all the different things he did, this encounter is the one that introduces and contextualizes his entire mission. This is the encounter that helps you understand Jesus. It's like his calling card. Now that means that we really need to understand what is going on here. Whether you believe that it's happened twice and it bookends Christ's uh, ministry or that John thought it was so significant he moved it to the start. Something extraordinary is happening. I want you to imagine the drama of it. Um, there were tens of thousands. In fact, they reckon between three and 400,000 pilgrims that would come to Jerusalem for the great feasts. And, uh, and uh, so there would have been thousands, certainly hundreds, maybe thousands, in the court of the Gentiles where this takes place. And it's noisy. There's animals squawking because we know that they were selling doves and lambs and all the rest of it. So there's meh and 
and different noises going on, little ad- uh, animals in cages, uh, because you know, you'd come in and you would uh, buy uh, an animal to sacrifice. If you were poor, it might be just a, a dove. If you were wealthy, it might be a lamb. If you are wealthy and had done something really naughty, it might be even more than that. And, um, and then on top of that, Herod, who is just about finished rebuilding the temple at this point, uh, in order to pay for it all, has put <coughs> a, a tax in place, the temple tax. And they've minted their own coins. Uh, they said, we don't want the emperor's head, which is what was on the Roman coins. We know because we've dug them up. Uh, we don't want any of that nonsense, that idolatry in the temple. So we're going to create our own currency. So they've created their own bitcoins, you know, for the temple. And uh, that means, uh, many of you will have worked out, they were setting their, their own exchange rates. Okay, just under, wave at me if you understand that's a pretty good way of making money. Right, some of you are going, that's exactly how I have made my money. No. So, <coughs> so uh, are these pilgrims, many have traveled from the, the extremities of the Roman Empire, and they're coming in, they're having to change their money. So there's people, you know, and they're, they're being the same as, as market traders today. They're not, they're not it's, you know, it, it's not like going into Pandora. What a rip-off shop that is. <coughs> Tiny little beat. Anyway, uh, it's not like, you, you know, it wasn't like, ah, House of Fraser, welcome. You know, it was like, roll up, ladies and gentlemen, get your lambs here, lovely lambs, doesn't matter what you've done, you know, and all of that. And so this is the context, and Jesus goes in there, uh, and you imagine the look in his face. He's like a volcano about to erupt as he strides up to the first table, this look of intent on his face, and the bloke behind the table thinking, oh, I'm not sure what I think of this one, you know. And Jesus lifts the table, so I want you to hear the coins clattering on the ground, and that sheep, that its cage just got knocked over, and it's, and the market trader is probably cursing at Jesus, bad idea. What do you think you're doing, you know? And he turns the table, and then everyone's going, there's a little scream over there. And then, as if that's not enough, Jesus goes and, 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 and he turns a few more over. And then when everyone's screaming, going, what's he doing? He climbs on a table. Of course he did, because when there's thousands of people and there's a, 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 a great commotion, you have to get on something elevated to speak to everybody. And he yells out, he says, my father's house. That's what the other Gospels say, that my Father's house, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations and you. And he's pointing because there were a lot of priests. They had tall white hats walking around all like official. You have made it a den of robbers. Wow, what a moment. Why is Jesus getting so passionate about the house of prayer? I mean, it's important to understand biblically. It's important to understand because for us as a church, we're all about prayer. A week tomorrow, we launch our next season of night and day prayer. What, 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 what is it? Well, I just want us to take a little moment to look at some context. I want you to look at this picture of the architecture of the temple, Herod's temple, the one that Jesus would have been in. And what you see is it was built a bit like a Russian doll. And that big tall bit in the middle, that's uh, mostly the holy of holies. That's the bit that they believe the presence of God particularly dwelt within. 
The Ark of the Covenant is in there. Indiana Jones, eat your heart out. Um, no one was allowed to go in there except once a year a priest was chosen by lots to go in there. And, and it was so holy, they used to, uh, we're told, tie a rope around the poor old priest's ankle so that if he got slain dead in there, they could just pull his corpse out. This is, by the way, if anyone ever does that to you, it's not a good sign, you know. You imagine, and you see how tall it is. Kids are walking around Jerusalem. They're saying, Mom, what's that tall building? That's where God lives. Wow. Can I go? No. Why not? Because God lives there. You, you understand? That's the Holy of Holies. It's not just the heart of the temple. It's the heart of Jerusalem. It's the heart of Israel. It's the heart of the whole earth, the presence of God. You look at that with awe. And then the next, as it were, concentric circle out is the court of the priests, the Levites. You know, the, you had to be born into this. And then the next circle out is the court of the Israelites. You had to be Jewish and a man. It is sexist because the next circle out is the court of the women. Sorry, ladies. But even then, it's not just sex, it's kind of racist because you had to be a Jewish woman because then the next circle out is the court of the Gentiles like where plebs like most of you and me could go. And it is in that court of the Gentiles where Jesus is having this great big showdown. We uh, know that uh, an archaeologist dug up a plaque in the year 1871. An archaeologist dug up a plaque from the temple here that almost certainly um, was on the wall by one of the doors from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women. And um, it's extraordinary because written in great big fat red letters on this plaque, and Jesus almost certainly saw one of these plaques, and I reckon was pointing at one when he was, when he was saying it's going to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is what the plaque said. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Interestingly, his death will take place in the court of the women. So it's the women that go. Here we have a brutal hierarchy of exclusion from the presence of God on the basis of ethnicity, gender, and ordination. And it is enforced by death threats. So you've traveled from the ends of the earth, and the closest you can get to the presence of God is that noisy, squawky, hectic, bizarre, the court of the Gentiles. And something within Jesus rises up because he knows his mission is to knock down those divides. To fling wide the gates and say, come on in. Come on in from the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. Come on, women, into the court of the men. Do I hear a whoop there? And then, come on in, you Israelites, into the court of the priests. What? Yeah, you're all priests. Bang, 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 bang. The Levite's like, what's he doing? What's he doing? And then in the court of the, of the priests, come on into the Holy of Holies. <gasps> but God's in there precisely. He loves you. Come on in to the holiest place on earth. We so easily go, 
Oh, isn't it lovely? A time of worship, a little moment of prayer. Isn't God lucky that I spent an hour in prayer three years ago? You know, what a blessing for the Lord that must be. We've totally lost the sense of wonder that we, through Christ, are invited into the holy of holies, the very presence of the living God of all creation. Jesus came to give us access all areas, triple A passes. <laughs> Wherever you want to go, come on in, come on in, you're welcome, you're entitled to be here. I don't know, are Robbie and Holly back here today? Here. Hello, nice to see you guys. I'm about to tell a story about you. So, who's that sitting between you? Simon. Oh, it's Simon, okay. <laughs> when Robbie and Holly got married, how long ago was it? Just over a year. Just over a year. You knew that as well, didn't you, Robbie? <laughs> what was the date? What date was it, Robbie? <laughs> oh, very good. Um, <laughs> just checking. Chaps, try all you can to get married on a memorable date. Christmas Day is a bad idea, I'm telling you right now. So, um, uh, when they got married just over a year ago, um, and then went, went off on, on the honeymoon, and uh, it, 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 it was a little bit of a rocky sort of... Um, was it, was it the, tra the travel agency or the hotel that slightly stitched you up? The travel agency. And so they arrived at the airport... And there was no shuttle to the hotel, which was miles away. They had to spend 300 euros, you know, very, very big chunk of their savings, their honeymoon on getting a taxi to the hotel. The hotel, the service was terrible. And so Robbie's mum got indignant. And, and complaints were made to the travel agency. And you will be stunned to hear that absolutely no one at the travel agency cared in any way whatsoever about Robbie and, uh, and, and Holly's uh, uh, honeymoon. And so Robbie's mum, not to be deterred, went on LinkedIn and managed to find out who owns the travel agency and what his email address was. And Robbie's mum, this is right, isn't it? Robbie's mum wrote directly to the owner of the... <laughs> Wave if you've got a mum or a mother-in-law a bit like this. Yeah. yeah, we'll minister to you later. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and got through to the owner and complained, and within 24 hours they had a full refund. Now, here's the point. It's worth going to the top, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when you don't just fart around in the court of the Gentiles, but you can walk straight into the Holy of Holies and talk to the living God, anything is possible. And that is the privilege and the power and the potential of prayer. And we read this beautifully expressed in Hebrews chapter 10. And I hope that because of this context I've given you, this little passage is about to come alive for you in a new way with so many metaphors that would have made perfect sense to uh, Jews who understood the architecture of the temple and the system of sacrifice and priesthood. Listen to this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place... With confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, not just the blood of 
the lambs being sacrificed there. By a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, we, we hear that the, the curtain separating the, the, the court of the priests and the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. Massive, tall, maybe 90 foot high curtain. And, and they're saying Jesus' body was ripped apart and that was the curtain giving you access. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We have no need to be afraid or ashamed in the Holy of Holies because Jesus Christ has laid down his life, has shed his blood that we might be forgiven, that we might be the priest who rightfully steps into the holiest place on earth. Jesus opened a way. That's why a messed up, ex-drug-using, philandering rock musician like Ken Helser steps into the very presence of God and God says, tell my servant Ken, here's my plan for his unborn son's life. This is the grace and the love the acceptance of God. No matter what you've done, you cannot be too sinful for the Holy of Holies, only too proud to accept the sacrifice of Jesus that gives you access all areas. And really the story I tell in Dirty Glory, the story of 24-7, is the story of what happens when now millions of people find themselves in the Holy of Holies the miracles that take place, the things that God says, the way that destinies are unlocked because they walked into that space in the presence of God. I love the story of an atheist businesswoman in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Believer's Church, who stepped into their prayer room. She said, I didn't believe in Jesus or God or much of anything, and yet I was rocked to the point of no longer being able to stand on my own two feet. I sat there shaking, desperately trying to hide my tears, shocked because I had given up on God and yet I was instantly, into my own surprise, a believer in Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time, but it's not that surprising, is it, that if you don't believe in God and then you find yourself in his presence, sort of the first thing that happens is you start to believe in him. And so those kind of encounters do take place. I always loved that story of um, uh, some friends in the Salvation Army who were organizing a prayer room in Australia. And, uh, you know, prayer rooms are just holy of holies. And um, uh, an Aboriginal First Nations woman walked in with her three children, looking shocked. And she said to them, last night I had a dream. And in my dream, there was a light. And it led me to a building. And I, I woke up this morning, I got my kids, said, I've got to find that building that I saw, the light took me to, and when I saw your building, I recognized it from my dream, so I've come on in, what is this place? They said, oh, this is a church, and we're praying night and day, 
and you're welcome. She said, what do I do now? And they said, you give your life to Jesus Christ. And she did, led uh, through a dream. Sometimes it's maybe a little bit less dramatic, but equally life-changing. One of my closest friends I was with just uh, a week ago, you know, he was dating this girl, and they'd been going out forever, for ages. And one of the things I quite often, you'd be surprised how often have to do as a pastor, is take blokes outside and say, no, chap, you've been going out a long time. <laughs> Are you thinking of proposing, you know? <laughs> or, uh, you know, you're kind of in danger, you're either going to have to break this off or do something, because this has been a, a long time. And, and uh, it is mostly the blokes. I'm just, uh, maybe it's sexist, but that's just my experience. And, uh, you know, fear of commitment, but she's not perfect. <laughs> my dear friend, nor are you. <laughs> In fact, in the ratings thing, you're even less perfect than her. Uh, do not kid yourself. Um, Cindy Crawford is not waiting for you in a worship service somewhere. And um, this particular guy was wrestling with that whole thing, and he realized, I, I do have a bit of an issue. I'm just terrified of commitment. And he, 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 many nights in a row, went into the prayer room. He said, I just wrestled with some of the root issues why I was so terrified of giving myself away and trusting someone and, and marrying myself literally to someone who wasn't perfect. And as he processed that stuff with his loving Heavenly Father, he began to find freedom. And it was through that week of prayer that he gained the courage his knees still knocking, let me tell you, to propose to his girlfriend. And I had the joy of preaching at their wedding. And they're still married, uh, what is it, 18 years later, happily married with a beautiful child. But destinies get changed in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of the Father. Anything can happen. Lives can change. Do sign up for the uh, next 24-7 season on the 16th uh, of October, week tomorrow. Um, the slots are going fast. I sneakily went online and grabbed my slots before any of you Gentiles could grab yours. Uh, <laughs> because you'd be so overwhelmed by this talk that you will uh, want to do it. Um, in God's presence, we're changed. Things happen. And uh, one particular part of the 24-7 story has been replaying in my head a lot this week. Uh, for reasons that will become obvious. It's that story, some of you will have read it or heard it before, but it is pretty remarkable, of um, Deb uh, Fritch, who was organizing 24-7 um, prayer throughout uh, 2008, uh, throughout uh, Arizona, the state of Arizona, the Grand Canyon state. And uh, just um, 34 days into that year of prayer, the Super Bowl touched down. Uh, in the University of Phoenix Stadium uh, there. As you know, it's one of the watch, most watched sporting events in the world. And a, a few days before that, um, someone received a dream in which they saw blood over the University of Phoenix Stadium, blood just pouring out. And they took this as a warning from God that something was going to happen. And so Debs uh, commissioned a bunch of intercessors to go down to the car park around the University of Phoenix Stadium the night before the Super Bowl and to intercede and to pray against bloodshed. These are the moments when you sort of think, if there isn't a God, we are just mad, you know? Uh, what kind of fools are we? 
And so that was the night before. You can imagine the next day, Debs didn't have tickets for the Super Bowl, but she watched on TV. And she was on the edge of her seat thinking, is something terrible going to happen? And the whole of the Super Bowl passed without any problems whatsoever. And so she started to feel a bit stupid and a bit bad about commissioning these intercessors to go and pray. And then the news started to come out that a man uh, by the name of Kurt William Havelock had gone to the University of Phoenix Stadium on the day of the Super Bowl, armed with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle and 200 rounds of ammunition, having written letters to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Phoenix Times, saying, I will slay your children. Your children will pay in blood. He posted those. He went armed. He had a note on him saying, do not resuscitate. And he sat there about to start shooting. And he said, I can't explain it, but as I sat there in my car, I had a profound change of heart. What he didn't know is that he was parked on the exact spot where a group of Christian nutters had stood the night before, warned in a dream, praying against bloodshed at that event. So instead of starting to shoot, he phoned and handed himself in. Destinies changed, lives saved by the power of the Holy of Holies. And so as we think about the events of this time last week in Las Vegas, at which Stephen Paddock, as you know, shot dead 58 people and injured 489, many of them in hospital today, we must ask ourselves, was God speaking to people in Las Vegas this time last week, hours before the shooting, calling them to pray. And we don't know the answer to that question, but we do know that Jesus tells us explicitly to pray for deliverance from evil. And we do know that the Apostle Paul says that we are locked in a battle and it is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities and powers in high places. And we do know that in the third century, the great church father, Oregon, wrote, Critics of Christianity do not see in how many people the flood of evil is restrained and wild habits tamed by the gospel. So we're just going to, in a moment, um, pray and sing that song. But I just want to land this. I'm going to do the quickest... Uh, guide to really simply, practically, how you can grow in prayer that you've ever heard. It's going to take about three minutes, okay? The first thing I want to tell you is this. Good news, prayer is a skill. You can get better at it. People never tell you that, but it is. I'm not saying this is works, because this is all grace. The invitation is the Holy of Holies, but you can get better at this. If you stood by a grand piano and you said, um, I'd really love to be a concert pianist, you might say to the person, well, you know, how, how much have you practiced? Or, or if someone said, I, I've watched Tiger Woods, I want to be a great golfer. And you say, how much do you play? And they say, well, I chip it around once or twice a week. I have done for the last three years. You're probably going to say you're never going to be that good. We understand muscle memory. Well, there's muscle memory in prayer. And, and if you want to grow in prayer, then you're going to have to apply yourself to the disciplines 
that take you into the Holy of Holies and everything is grace from there onwards. And so what are those? Let me give you these four points. First of all, I want to say prayer begins by just showing up. Just show up. And you may need, uh, a lot of people have a chair that they like to go and pray in and encounter God. Some people, it's a particular walk they do each day. Some people, it's their commute. They load their phone up with their Bible and with you know, worship music, and that's their space with God. I heard about a builder who used to go to the building site, sit in his white van, have a coffee out of his thermos, and spend 10 minutes with God at the start of his working day. But you need to find your space, your chair, your place where you encounter God, because without a, pl- a set time and place for prayer, you will never really grow in prayer. Now, of course, you can talk to God all the time. You can chat to God like a mate. It's like the Holy of Holies. God was in all of the earth, but there was some place that was particularly focusing his presence. And so we need to find those places for each one of us. The great thing about having a place that you show up is this. Sometimes you won't want to pray. And you say to God, don't really want to talk to you today, but I'm here. Just the showing up is kind of praying. And you'll have times when the prayer is really hard and they're going to have, you're going to have times when you're taken by surprise by the presence of God and the miracles he does and the things he says to you. But you keep growing, you show up. The second key to growing in prayer is to look up. See, We tend to get in the presence of God and it's a bit like we're on the throne and he's down there and we say, now here are the things I need you to do for me. Because, you know, the universe really ought to sort of orbit me and my feelings and my requirements. But the next thing we really need to do in prayer is to get off the throne and allow God to take it. And remember who he is and who we're not. To look up and to worship That's why Jesus says, begin your prayers, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. By remembering who he is, you get perspective on all of life. By giving thanks to God for the little things he has done, you find faith for the things he hasn't done yet. Don't just rush in with your shopping list if you can help it. Take a little bit of time, maybe put a bit of worship music on. Give thanks for a few things, count your blessings. And the other thing whilst we're down here is, oh, and I've got a little thing on that. Have a look at this, this is funny. For those listening, there's a road sign saying, thank you for driving carefully, and a crashed, overturned car just beyond it. You know, gratitude can easily get misplaced, but it isn't with God. He's always worthy of our thanks and our our gratitude and our worship. The third thing we do is whilst we're down on the floor, as it were, worshipping and giving thanks, we look up. And, uh, sorry, we shut up. Here's the next slide. We shut up. If you're anything like me, I rush in, I want to give God my list, but actually sometimes we just need to listen. What if God's got stuff he wants to ask us? What if he's got a prayer list? What if things, there are things he wants to say? Jesus says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. You'll starve if you don't get this stuff. The primary way God speaks to you is through the Bible. On every single page of the Bible, I guarantee every one of you can find at least one thing that God might be saying to you today. 
Use that as the starting point for a conversation with him. Learn not just to read the Bible for information, but to pray the Bible for revelation. We're told, be still and know that I am God. We're told that often God speaks in a still, small voice, and so sometimes in a busy, hectic world, we have to be still. And then finally, after you've shown up, looked up, and shut up, you get to speak up. The stuff that most of us think that this is where we start. You get to ask God for the things that are on your heart. And remember that when you do that, everyone prays, even atheists pray, but the difference when Christians pray is that we are climbing into the lap of our Heavenly Father. He is on the throne. And like little children, we get to sit with him. And he puts his arm around you and he says, Now, son, now, daughter, I love you so much. Now, Ken, I know you used to do a lot of bad stuff, but I've wiped all that away. I just love you. Let me tell you what I'm dreaming for your boy, John, who's not been born yet. Jesus said the Father loves to give good gifts to those who ask. When blind Bartimaeus approached Jesus, Jesus didn't say, I know what you need. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus said, duh, I want to receive my sight. You have to articulate your desires to the Father. But know that you're not wrestling with an angry God. You're not trying to strong arm a dispassionate deity. But you're sitting in the lap of your Father. He is on the throne. He is in the Holy of Holies. And you get to work with him for the fulfillment of his purposes in and through your life. And so that is when we speak up and bring him our prayers. I believe that God is calling us as a community to be a house of prayer for the nations. I believe that Jesus is passionate for that in us. He's calling each one of us this week to show up, make some space, to look up, give thanks, to shut up, listen to him, and then to speak up, to share our desires. In God's presence, anything is possible. No matter what you've done, you are loved. You are a son or a daughter of God, entitled to enter the Holy of Holies, where he speaks, he forgives, He answers and he unlocks destinies. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. It'd be great just to get the band back. We're going to finish by singing that song written by Jonathan Helser that we saw in the video. And as we sing this song, this line, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Speak it even to your own heart. Where are the areas of fear, the areas of inadequacy, the areas in which you want to hide even from the Holy of Holies, in the outer courts? I am no longer a slave to fear. I don't need to fear the future because the God of all creation loves me and has the best for me. I don't even need to fear the terrible things that come in life ultimately because in prayer, I have the power to overcome. Let's stand together, shall we, and sing this as our response.